Welcome to the Ghostly Gallery podcast, a place where we explore the world of horror in film, literature, and in popular culture. Hello, everyone. My name is Bruce Markison. I'm joined by our producer and co-host, Tracy Asteria. This edition of the Ghostly Gallery podcast is uh, somewhat of a free-form show. No guest, just me and Tracy talking about a few different topics, and we'll lay out what those are in just a moment. Tracy, been a couple of weeks since I talked to you. How have you been? I've been great. How's everything going with you, Bruce? Things have been busy here, but um, it's it's looking much better these days. Well, here in Cooperstown, we just had our Hall of Fame weekend last weekend, so it uh, everything calms down once that is said and done, which is kind of a nice uh, breath, but uh, still very busy summer in Cooperstown. A lot of people at the Hall of Fame, a lot of tourists in town, and we're certainly grateful for that. Uh, Over the course of this show, Tracy, want to touch upon three different things. Part one, we're going to get into ghost hunting and some of your endeavors in that area. Uh, Then in part two, I want to talk about the film that came out in April of this year, was recommended to us by one of our early guests, Tucker Christine. It's the Renfield movie featuring uh, Nicolas Cage and Nicholas Holt. We both have had a chance to watch that in the last few days. Pretty wild film. And then part three, we'll do a very short sneak peek at a new film coming out in August. It's also related to the uh, Dracula subgenre, The Last Voyage of the Demeter. So uh, those are the three areas that we'll cover in uh, this week's program. So Tracy, I wanna wanna grill you for the next few minutes. Uh, We wanna delve more into your background as a paranormal investigator. Uh, This is something you've been doing for, I guess, a number of years. Mm -hmm. Tell us how this interest began for you. Oh my gosh. Well, I've always been interested in the paranormal ever since I was a small child. Um, kind of lived in a couple of different places where we had a few strange occurrences. But it really wasn't until 2016 was I scrolling through Facebook and I found a Facebook group called Haunted Nova Scotia. And through becoming a part of that page, I discovered they held ghost hunting events. So I subscribed and I joined up on one of those ghost hunting overnight adventures. And these these adventures were at the Fortress of Lewisburg, which is located in Cape Breton. So this fortress is what it is. It's a partial reconstruction of the 18th century fortress in the Cape Breton area, like Lewisburg, Nova Scotia. And it was a, a battleground back and forth between the French and the British descendants. So I went up there. It's about a three and a half hour drive to Cape Breton. And I took one of my boys with me and we had an amazing experience of ghost hunting. We had a period meal. We listened to a lot of historical notes, did a walk through the village. And then after that, we actually did ghost hunting. And I was so impressed with just how everything was run. And I was asked if I wanted to join the team because the team is actually based about 45 minutes from where I was, from where I'm living. 
And I joined up in 2016 and I've been a member of Paranormal Investigations Nova Scotia ever since. So that first time you went with your family, you were a smaller part of a larger group of investigators kind of getting a sampling of how to do it? Well, it was, it was my very first ghost tour, my very first one that I ever went on. And I met the members of the group there. And then I became a member and started my mm -hmm. ghost hunting journey from there. Did you get to use equipment? I did. So I was able to use um, EMF detectors, heat detectors, and we actually had a medium that was part like part of the team at the same time. So mm. there was just lots of equipment, even some just regular pieces of equipment, like a flashlight, just a regular twist flashlight that we they would use as part of their investigation tools so lots of different equipment and it's not all fancy equipment there were cameras and and stuff like that but there were there mm -hmm. were physical pieces that we could use on the investigation and just learn how to work some of that stuff and once i became a member i purchased my own equipment and there's there's just so much equipment out there to choose from and some of it's quite costly but over time you can get a really good collection of items to start your journey as well doing emf using heat detectors is that easy to learn very easy the emf detectors they detect the energy that's in the air and when you have the device, you would actually just do an initial sweep of the room. So you can mm. pick up any, like if there was power lines coming into the house or any interference that you could document as being something that would not be an anomaly, but it's just, it's very simple to use. The, the meter goes up and down in relation to the amount of energy that you come into contact with. And it's interesting because it will if there is a presence in the room it it has the capability to react to this meter in response to the questions that you're asking mm -hmm. prior to this did you watch any of the shows like ghost hunters or ghost adventures was that an interest of yours even before this Yes, I, I watched Ghost Adventures. I haven't watched too much Ghost Hunters, but Ghost Adventures, I was a really big fan of. And I, I don't watch it as much as I used to, but I always found it really interesting. And they kind of presented it in such a way where you would think that there would be constant activity all the time. So it would really mm -hmm. hype a group of people up and even hype myself up if I was going out on an actual ghost tour to think that all of these wonderful things would would happen. But it, it's not always like that, that's for sure. But I, I'm, a, I'm still a big fan of ghost adventures. I, I do like it. It's, it's interesting. <laughs> What do you think of their host, Zach Baggins? Oh my goodness. Um, he's quite a comedian. He's, I've found his style um, over the years. He's really um, into kind of like provoking some of the activity. So right. it's, um, it's definitely a different style. My, my style of interacting with the energy around us. It's not like as provoking as he can be, 
um, it's kind of more gentle. <laughs> yeah, you're less confrontational. <laughs> yes, that I guess that's the word I was looking for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's interesting, Tracy, a few years back, Ghost Hunters actually came to Cooperstown. I believe it was the winter of 2010, and it was just a few months before they were going to investigate a couple of pretty famous locations in Cooperstown, mm -hmm. one of them being the Hall of Fame, and the other, the four-star resort hotel, the Otisaga. But in anticipation of this, they hosted a weekend seminar. I want to say it was in January, February, because it was frigid cold. Wow. And my wife and I went, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, they had some really interesting talks and presentations. They got into all sorts of stuff. One guy collects Ouija boards. He has like four to 500 in his house. I have no idea where he puts them all, but it's like a museum of Ouija boards. Wow. Uh, there was another guy that has been uh, part of exorcisms and has seen some really wild stuff. He's written books about the subject as well. But during this, this, I think it was a weekend that this happened. It was a two or three day event, as I recall. But all the participants were given a chance to do some ghost hunting, mm -hmm. particularly EVP work. Uh, what is that? Electronic voice phenomenon, right? That's correct. Yes. So my wife and I actually did that. We had a tape recorder in, I believe, the main dining room. And we listened and listened and listened. And some of the people really got into it. I found I just didn't really have the patience for it. Uh, right. I, I think it's fun to watch. For years, we watched Ghost Hunters mm -hmm. uh, and, and really enjoyed that. Every week, we would make that appointment television. But how do you manage to deal with those hours and hours that you might spend on a ghost hunt waiting for something to happen? Maybe it happens, maybe it doesn't. I just, I didn't have the patience for it. How do you cope with that? Oh, wow. And and that's such a great point, Bruce. Um, you can go into a location and you you could spend hours and hours and hours just sitting there asking questions and trying to get EVP evidence or just something to happen. And that's definitely not always the case. And, and it, it does get quite frustrating because you you go there with your gear and you're expecting, you know, great things to happen because people have come to you and have told you all of these stories of things that have happened to them. So it, it does get frustrating, but after a couple of hours of not getting any evidence, we would just typically move on to like a different location in the building because just maybe mm -hmm. that the time isn't right. And yeah. it, I, I've, I've heard a lot of people say, well, it has to be dark to do this. And that's definitely not true. It can be daylight. It can be nighttime. It, it doesn't matter if the energy is there, the energy is there. But, um, I, I definitely understand the frustration of just being there for hours upon hours with no evidence at all. Yeah. Um, and what's really difficult too, is if you're, you're having a group tour, a lot of the people that come to be part of these tours don't always understand that either. So they become frustrated and then they don't have a good time, which, which is disappointing, but you know, we try to make the best of it. Yeah. Obviously you took to it. And the first time that, that you went to Cape Breton, they asked you to join, right? So they were impressed yes. with you. Yes. And it was, it was a great experience. Um, 
we had so many different things happen in our group. And I actually, I kind of went along with a couple of different members that evening. And there was so much evidence that was presented and, you know, you just kind of ride on that adrenaline. And, you know, when they asked me to join, I was, I was thrilled. I was like, absolutely. <laughs> what kinds of evidence did you see or hear? So that very first time, um, I'll tell you like a really interesting story. So it was our first night and it was, we were actually allowed to sleep in the barracks. So there's the barracks where the soldiers had slept. Mm. And my son and I, we were staying on like one of those little bunks up in one of the corner rooms. And we heard footsteps coming up the stairwell. And so this was really late at night. Everybody had been sound asleep already. And there was no explanation as to who would be coming up those steps because everything was kind of really locked down for the evening. And out of the corner of my eye, I thought I saw Earl and Darcy, who were the group members, kind of just slowly walking through the area. But when I talked to them the next day, they they said that they had not been in that area, that they were off on the other side of the fortress, mm. just doing like a personal investigation. And I thought that was the oddest experience, but a lot of the, like a lot of the stories from the fortress of Lewisburg, a lot of the energy kind of misrepresents itself kind of like as people that you might already know, just so it doesn't scare you. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people have had those experiences of as well. So that was kind of like the biggest thing. And it's, it's a lot of just footsteps. And one of the places that we went in there was the Duage house, which is considered to be the most haunted house on the fortress. Um, we had some really great experiences there. So some of the actual stories that go back like many, many years is staff at the Fortress of Lewisburg had been reported, they've reported things of being like touched or pushed, or they'd see faces in windows or hear laughs of children. And we, as a group, we went up to that particular room where all the activities usually reported at the Duage house. And we were asking questions and not really getting any responses, but then we started to get responses and our flashlight that they were using as part of a communication device, it would go on and off as a yeah. yes or no to right. some of the questions. And it, from what we understand, it was probably the energy from a small boy who had used to live in that house. So it's quite, quite interesting. And then there was a couple of other circumstances just of really loud bangs at the fortress when we were kind of in the bakery section, which is around one side. And yeah. it was just bangs and it sounded like cannon fire. Hmm. And there was no explanation for it. It just, it happened. It scared us all to death. And then it went away and we never heard it again. <laughs> Wow. So in the seven years you've been doing this, Tracy, you have definitely found tangible evidence that ghosts do exist. Yes. 
Absolutely. There was one other time that we did go back to the Fortress of Lewisburg Bruce. And this is really two very spooky stories. Um, there is actually a chapel on the premises and it is the King's Bastion Chapel. And we actually did a Ouija board session in mm. this chapel. And we You're got braver a... than I am. <laughs> I was scared. <laughs> I have never used a Ouija board before in my life. And so that was my first time. And I was so scared. But we actually had a little bit of movement. But all of our EMF detectors were going off like crazy. The lights were flashing. And we were getting a little bit of EVP evidence on our little recorders. And I could feel like we have video of this, like I have an actual video. I felt I was being touched on my right shoulder. And I actually, I told the group owner who is doing the Ouija board session with me at the same time, I said, I have to stop. I can't do this. There's like something beside me. Mm -hmm. and, and we had to close the board. And, you know, I, I, I knew too that there's actually because it is a historical location and it is on the exact grounds that the Lewisburg Fortress originally was, even though it is like a partial reconstruction, underneath the floorboards of the chapel, there's actually five bodies buried underneath mm. and they belong to some very well-known historical figures that they would be like the governor or military personnel who were considered extremely important to to be buried under there really so the, the, lots of different evidence but over the years we've, we've collected a lot of evidence as a group and we would post some on our Facebook page and part of our website that I believe, actually, I don't even know if the website is still active, but we had evidence of, um, there's a, it's called Catherine's Grave, which is located in Thorburn, hmm. Pictou County. And we had a lot of great evidence from there as well. And the really good part about that location, there is no interference from electrical lines. Like there's no cell phone reception. So you wouldn't get any of that interference. And yet we had a lot of EVP activity. We had sound on our voice recorder and we could hear like different movements. We actually had like a little tiny miniature figure come flying at us off the top of the gravestone. Mm. And it was, again, very unnerving. <laughs> so this was something you could see? Something we could actually see. And I'm not, mm. I don't get convinced easily because I'm one of those ones that I have to discredit like every single thing that has happened before I can say, yes, I actually believe. So th there's been a few times where I'm like, yeah, I actually believe that. Yeah. Tracy, I'm curious with your society, your, your ghost hunting society, do people either living in a haunted house or working at a haunted location, do they ever contact you asking for help? Is, is that how you're kind of motivated to go out to these different places? It is. So we, we do get, we get Facebook messages or even telephone calls and they, they are asking for assistance. We've, we've investigated different private homes for people they've 
been having problems, say, noises or unexplained events, and they just kind of want to get to the bottom of it. Hmm. And we've actually had a few people reach out asking for, you know, house cleansing and, you know, to get rid of like negative energy in the environment that they live in, which is something that is very specialized. And there's only two people on the team that actually can do that. Um, but, but we do have people asking for help quite often, quite often. And sometimes we find stuff and sometimes we don't. And we do try our hardest to kind of come up with a reasonable explanation to give to the homeowners to say what's actually going on. Cause sometimes it's simple as just, it, it's an electrical problem in their house or just, just something wonky like that. But yeah. if we have evidence, we do present it to the homeowners and, you know, they kind of take it from there. I mean, it's definitely not always like bad energy that they're contacting us about. Sometimes they might just want some kind of closure as well. Sure. Well, it's fascinating to me, and I think it's great that you've been doing this now for the last seven years and continue mm -hmm. to do it as well. Uh, if there's anybody out there listening that needs to contact your organization and, and needs some help and they're within a short distance of you, what's the best way for them to approach your society? Um, definitely. Um, just look up Haunted Nova Scotia on Facebook. There is a Facebook page and you just click to join. And I am an administrator on that page too. So I will make sure to approve all requests and you just send, send a message through messenger and we will definitely get back to you. You can private message me directly or any of the other admins on the page and, and they're listed there as well. And, you know, whatever we can do to help, we would be more than happy to get, get some answers for, for people. That's great. It's Haunted Nova Scotia on Facebook and Tracy and her colleagues can try to assist you with some uh, ghost hunting. Let's now make the transition from ghost hunting to vampire hunting. Well, not actually vampire hunting, but the genre of watching vampires. Uh, we both had a chance this week to watch the new Nicolas Cage film, Renfield, which debuted in April of this year. It was recommended to us by one of our early guests, Tucker Christine, who is an expert on the subject of Dracula and more generally vampires as well. Uh, so you had a chance to watch it. I watched it as well. It's on uh, the Peacock subscription service. Uh, Want to get your thoughts on it. I'll give you some of my initial thoughts mm -hmm. uh, in terms of kind of an overview. It's really, I think, the kind of film that you have to watch with the sense that it's comedy first, action second, and then really horror is third on the list. It's kind of like a movie similar to Shaun of the Dead or Tucker and Dale versus Evil. So there's a lot of tongue in cheek. There's a lot of suspension of belief that's really required here. It's very campy, very over the top, especially during the first half hour or so. And the early minutes of the movie or the, the, the first 30, 40 minutes, I thought it was a little bit too much over the top, but then once they established the battle of good versus evil, 
You've got Dracula and these local gangsters on one side of the equation. And then you've got the good-hearted Renfield and the local policewoman on the other side. Really, it became a more compelling and engaging movie for me. So really for the rest of the film, probably that last hour or so, uh, it was really engaging and it was it was fun. Uh, it's wild, no question. Uh, and it's it's not the most serious film that you're going to see, uh, but I enjoyed it. Your thoughts on it, Tracy? I I did enjoy it as well. I I actually I had no idea what to expect because I had never watched a trailer in advance. I just knew it was a Nicolas Cage movie, and it it was interesting. It was it was a little bit gory because I'm not used mm. to a lot of gore like that, but it was fun. Just like you said, it was fun. It was interesting in that whole good versus evil. I, a lot of twists and turns, I would say for sure. And I would recommend it to anybody just to have a, a good watch. It. I watched it yesterday afternoon and I, again, I really enjoyed it. I think Nicolas Cage did a really great job. Um, he kind of reminded me of the Godfather in a way. <laughs> and um so i was really impressed really impressed yeah i agree the cage is great in it so is this this young actor and and he's done some other work before but i'm not really that familiar with him his name is nicholas holt he's a young british actor and he plays the title role so he's really the lead he's renfield and as this character he is very funny likable and really presents kind of the human side to the character, despite the fact that he gains superhuman strength that he can suddenly acquire whenever he eats a bug that might be available <laughs> to him. Yes. So uh, very comic, very supernatural, but he still is, for the most part, uh, a human character. He's really not uh, a monster. As you mentioned, uh, Nicolas Cage is terrific as Dracula. He's really, I think, the perfect choice one of the first things that surprised me was how good his British accent was, because I know he's tried British accents in the past, at least in one film that I'm aware of, didn't go over as well, but I thought his, his British accent here was very good. Apparently, he modeled it somewhat after his father, uh, uh, August Coppola, uh, and uh, of course, uh, the, the brother to Francis Ford Coppola. Mm -hmm. So there was, some influence within his own family, but there was also the Christopher Lee influence as well. Nicolas Cage's, uh, among his favorite actors, are Christopher Lee, who of course did so many of those films for Hammer Studios when he portrayed Dracula. And even though he didn't speak in a lot of them, he does occasionally voice lines. So there was an influence there. Uh, but again, that British accent was was surprisingly good. And as far as the character, the mix of comedy and horror, I thought he had just the right touch of comedy. But then there were other times where he still really managed to be pretty brutal and pretty ruthless much of the time. So he was very good making that transition from over-the-top comedy to suddenly being rather serious and rather unrelenting in his portrayal of this character. And I want to get your thoughts on this too, Tracy. One of the real strengths of the movie is, is the makeup that they used and the special effects. They spent $65 million. Uh, that's a good amount of money on a horror film. 
And you can tell that, yeah, they put a lot of money into that effort. I thought the makeup effects were outstanding. Nicolas Cage's Dracula looks a little bit different in each scene. You know, when we first see him, he's kind of recovering from being taken down by the church leaders. So we see him kind of slowly being restored, nursed back to health by Renfield. And then with each subsequent scene, you know, he's a little bit stronger. He's more intact. Uh, you know, so we have a nice contrast from, you know, really barely existing and looking rather horrific to then becoming gradually more presentable. So every one of those scenes, I don't know, maybe the first four or five times we see him, he does look a little bit different. And that, I think that speaks to the testament or speaks to the work of the special effects people. They did a really good job here. Oh gosh, yes, they did for sure. Um, his his image across the movie, it, it did, it get, it changed and it got better and the whole special effects 65 million wow i did not realize that that's yeah. incredible another key player is uh, an actress uh, who goes by the name of aquafina which is an interesting moniker uh and she is also she's pretty good as the the policewoman rebecca she's the daughter of a virtuous police officer an incorruptible police officer who has been murdered by local mobsters and this is the mobster that she's really trying to take down throughout the film and just like her father her character is incorruptible uh, pretty much everybody she works with is on the take they're in league with the local mob the local gang uh, but she refuses to go in with that uh, she's virtuous she's likable Maybe somewhat she lacked the physical stature that we might associate with, you know, uniformed police officers. Uh, but I thought in general, she did uh, she did a pretty good job uh, in this film, uh, being kind of the protagonist and, uh, and being the, the character that in some ways kind of initiates Renfield's transformation from being Dracula's servant to now being a more heroic figure. Exactly. She was a wonderful character right from the get go. And she she just made that role incredible. And like, what a strong presence she gave off it. I she did an excellent job. I was so impressed by that. Another actress who's very good in this movie is a Persian actress. Uh, her name Sheree Agadashlu, and she is absolutely perfect as the head of the local mob empire. I first watched her years ago. She was in the television show 24 with Kiefer Sutherland, and she's always been great at these kind of roles. She's playing a duplicitous or uh, sometimes completely villainous characters, and that's really the latter is what we see uh, in this movie. Uh, she's actually an Iranian-American actress, and um, everything I've ever seen her in is terrific she's made to play this part absolutely she was phenomenal and she has that voice that is just you know it is so recognizable again she did phenomenal i was so happy to see her because again i adored her character in 24 I love and i love 24 but yeah. to see her crop up again in this movie i really appreciated that 
When I watched the movie, Tracy, I was a little bit surprised by how comic it was. Uh, I knew from seeing some of the trailers that there was going to be quite a bit of humor. I guess I didn't realize how much there was going to be. Do you think they overdid the humor? Would you have liked to have seen this be a bit more serious? Um, that's a great question. Um, I think it had a really good, happy balance for me. Um, because I didn't really know too much about the history of the movie, like what it was going to be about. But I think it just the three aspects, like the comedy, the, you know, the whole Dracula and the little bit of horror and the little bit of gore. It, it just it it made the movie perfect. I, I don't think they could have done anything better. Yeah. Um, I think for me, it was a really great combination. One of the things I think that was done really well was the opening sequence where they actually showed scenes from the original Dracula with Bela Lugosi in 1931, but they inserted Nicolas Cage through the magic of uh, special effects into all the scenes. So instead of seeing Bela Lugosi in the film, we see Nicolas Cage and he's very much in those, in those early scenes He's very much made to look like Lugosi. It's all done in black and white, like the film was. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty seamlessly done. And I believe they also inserted uh, Nicholas Holt's character, what he looks like, into the character of Renfield, which was played so well by another terrific actor that we don't talk about enough. That's uh, Dwight Fry, who was absolutely made to play Renfield in 1931. Uh, but I, I thought that opening sequence was was pretty effective. Uh, the, it was almost seamless, the way that you could see Nicolas Cage in the Lugosi role. I mean, I guess somebody who had maybe never seen the original Dracula might have thought, hey, was there was there a movie years ago that showed Nicolas Cage playing Dracula in black and white? I, I thought it was I thought it was really effective. It was it really, really well done. Actually, it was pretty seamless. And I thought that was an excellent idea to have that as the opening piece of the movie. It was a great introduction. When you look at this movie, it's obvious, I think, that Tracy and I both enjoyed it. Uh, I would give it three stars. But financially, it actually turned out to be a flop for Universal Studios. I mentioned earlier, it cost $65 million to make. And it was only able to gross about 17 million, including both in America and internationally. So they lost money on the film. And as such, I'm guessing that there's probably not going to be a sequel, although artistically, I, I think it could work. I definitely see the character of Dracula revived. I could see Nicolas Cage continuing to have great fun with this role. And it's obvious watching mm -hmm. the movie that he's having He's having a blast playing this role. I think it was a dream for him to do so. And Nicholas Holt is just as good as Nicholas Cage. And I think artistically, they both could come back. Uh, they could do a, a sequel that, uh, you know, would again be a comedy and a horror film, but they could explore some different avenues. Again, I doubt that's going to happen because of the financial aspects, but uh, from an artistic standpoint, I would I would certainly not mind uh, seeing that happen. Uh, in terms of a summary of the movie, basically when I consider this movie, I would look at it and say it's not a deep 
or particularly serious film. If you're looking for that, this is not that kind of a production, but it is wild. It is fun. It's full of action, pretty much nonstop. There's great costuming, as we talked about earlier. Special effects are first rate, makeup, top of the line. It's all really well done and led by Cage and Holt. Uh, this is really uh, an enjoyable movie. I wish it had done better financially. Maybe it wasn't released at the right time. Maybe they should have waited for the summer. Uh, that, of course, is all hindsight. But uh, important thing to horror fans is it's a good time. It really is. And if you haven't seen Renfield, yes. I would, uh, would recommend it. Now, Tracy, there is another vampire film that is going to be coming out shortly. It's actually going to debut in early August, and it's certainly a more serious treatment of Dracula. It's called The Last Voyage of the Demeter, and it's based on the chapter in Bram Stoker's novel in which uh, Dracula transports himself on a ship from Transylvania to the English coast to Whitby, and it talks about some of the carnage that is unleashed by the vampire uh, during that trip. Based on the short previews I've seen on TV and I've seen some on the internet, it really, it looks outstanding. Uh, that chapter in Stoker's novel to me is the most riveting, the most action-packed, the most descriptive uh, as we learn about Dracula uh, traveling by ship to Whitby. Um, the chapter has wonderful and haunting descriptions. I'm actually going to read from that in a couple of moments just to give you a sense of what we might see uh, in the movie. Uh, you've seen some of the previews as well. Uh, your thoughts on it? It looks phenomenal, actually. Um, I just actually saw a couple of the trailers earlier today just in preparation for the show this afternoon. And I, the first one I saw, I just kind of like sat there and my jaw was just like on the ground. It looks phenomenal, Bruce. And I cannot wait to see it. It just, it gives me goosebumps. I can't wait for the debut. <laughs> I want to read a short excerpt from that chapter in the book. And this is chapter seven. It's the log of the Demeter. So I'm going to read from uh, Brands, Bram Stoker's text here. It is nearly all over now, just as I was beginning to hope that the mate would come out calmer, for I heard him knocking away at something in the hold, and work is good for him. There came up the hatchway a sudden startled scream, which made my blood run cold. And up on the deck, he came as if shot from a gun, a raging madman with his eyes rolling and his face convulsed with fear. Save me, save me, he cried, and then looked around on the blanket of fog. His horror turned to despair, and in a steady voice he said, you had better come too, Captain, before it is too late. He is there. I know the secret now. The sea will save me from him, and it is all that is left. Before I could say a word or move forward to seize him, he sprang on the bulwark and deliberately threw himself into the sea. I suppose I know the secret too now. It was this madman who had got rid of the men one by one 
now he has followed them himself. God help me. How am I to account for all these horrors when I get to port? When I get to port, will that ever be? So that's just a sampling of what is featured in this chapter, the log of the Demeter from Bram Stoker's novel. It's, it's great writing. Uh, I think it's really in many ways the peak of the book, or at least one of the peaks of the book. In talking about the movie and what the previews we've seen, it's only you know a few scenes here and there, but it appears that Dracula is presented as a monstrous figure. He bears no resemblance to the more human characters that would later be forged by people like Bela Lugosi and Christopher Lee. In this film, Dracula is, is beast-like with large wings, truly horrific in appearance. He looks like a monster, completely supernatural, does not have any human qualities. Now, I don't know if we see a more human Dracula during the film, but certainly what we've seen so far, he is depicted uh, as a monster. It's not really the kind of Dracula that we usually see on screen. It's something a little bit different, but I'm glad that this movie is willing to give that depiction uh, a try. Uh, something a little bit different and something that seems to have been executed uh, very well in this film, The Last Voyage of the Demeter. Now, Tracy, I should mention, I have actually not been back in a physical theater setting since before the pandemic. This is January of 2020. So it's been a few years for me, and it, it's not that I've been hesitant to go into a theater. I just, I just haven't, I just haven't motivated myself to go into theaters all that much. Right. I get spoiled watching Tubi and Netflix and Amazon Prime Video, <laughs> but this is a movie I want to see on the big screen. It debuts on August the 11th. I need to see this in the theater, on a large screen, hopefully with a lot of other people in the crowd. Yes, I completely agree. Those were my thoughts too, Bruce, as I was watching these previews of the movie. And I was like, this is one I have to go see in person. Just watching it on my TV screen is not going to cut it for the first time at all. It just, it, I need to have that experience with just the booming music and just the atmosphere of the audience. I, I need to have that for this, for the first time seeing this on the big screen. And again, I've not been to the theater in several years either. So I'm really looking forward to it. I can't wait to talk about it. Yeah. The last movie that I saw was a horror movie. It wasn't particularly good. It was The Turn of the Screw, which has been done many times. And it was done in kind of a weird fashion. So that was my last experience i believe it was january of 2020 and then the pandemic started to set in just a couple of months later and literally have not been back to uh, the theater since one of the concerns i have about the movie is not necessarily its quality it it, it seems like it's going to be good people that uh, have seen the previews uh, seem to agree some other insiders i've heard some of their comments about how good it is the one thing I worry about is coming out in August of this year with those two other movies that are getting so much popular, uh, so much publicity and have become so popular yes. already, Oppenheimer and Barbie. I just hope that 
those two films don't drown out the last voyage of the Demeter. Yes, I, I definitely see your point there. I, for this movie, I, I would have liked to have seen it come out in the fall, like maybe in mid-September as opposed to mid-August, just because everybody is on vacation in August and you, you're, you're just having those two big movies that you mentioned in theaters and they're drawing in the crowds and people are seeing those movies multiple times. I, I would hope that they will also kind of gravitate towards this one because like I said, this, this one looks phenomenal, especially for the horror fan. Well, we've been talking a lot about Dracula in our early shows. And we of course talked about the Renfield movie earlier. Now we have the last voyage of the Demeter debuting in August this summer. I'm curious, Tracy, to get your thoughts on maybe your favorite dracula related film of all time and i'm going to give you a chance to gather those thoughts i'm going to talk a little bit about my favorite adaptation and it was the movie that came out in 1992 and it was directed by nicholas cage's uncle francis ford coppola uh it was called bram stoker's dracula even though it's really not all that similar to bram stoker's work but it's one of the few big budget draculas that was ever done uh, it's got some wonderful performances. Gary Oldman is terrific as the vampire. Uh, you've got Winona Ryder, who uh, is stunning in the film, and I think her character is, is very likable, very interesting. Yeah, it has the miscast Keanu Reeves as Jonathan Harker doing a not-so-good English accent. We earlier praised Nicolas Cage <laughs> for doing well with his British accent in Renfield, not quite the same for Keanu Reeves. And I like Keanu Reeves. I think in the right film, he's very good. He can be funny. Uh, he's a tremendous action star. Uh, he also can do dramatic roles, but um, the role of Jonathan Harker probably uh, was not the right one for him. But I would say other than that casting, that for me is, is my favorite Dracula. And I was lucky enough uh, to see it in theaters. Um, this was before I was married. I was on a, a, a date and uh, the date went very well. I think we both enjoyed the movie and it was great seeing it on the big screen. And whenever it's on TV since then, I always try to make a point of watching it. Uh, it's got Anthony Hopkins, who's always good. Uh, as I said, Gary Oldman is, is terrific. And it's nice to see a big budget application to Dracula because so many times in the past, we've seen these very cheaply made low budget movies that don't always do justice to Bram Stoker's novel. Um, and even though this movie is, is quite different from what Stoker wrote, what he intended, uh, I still think it's, it's very, uh, very good. It's, it's uh, creative. Uh, it's got wonderful costuming and special effects mostly good performances across the board. Uh, it's, a, it's a favorite of mine. It's a four-star film. So that's my favorite Dracula of all time. How about yours, Tracy? What is your favorite film adaptation of the famed vampire? Oh my gosh, that is so hard. I've seen some really good ones, like old and new. Um, I can't really say which one is my favorite. The one that you mentioned, I remember watching that and that was a really great adaptation. Oh my goodness, adaptation. Um, I'm not sure. I think 
Oh, wow. I can't answer that. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, you know, you, you could answer by saying someone like Bela Lugosi in, in terms of the performance. Um, and he's yes. still the greatest Dracula of all time. The movie itself is not that great, though. It was done in 1931. It's, it's the beginning of the talking picture era. There's not a lot of music. There's no special effects. It's very choppy. It's not edited particularly well. Uh, certainly Lugosi's performance stands out. Um, Christopher Lee was, was great in the role, although he often wasn't given a lot of lines or didn't want to speak a lot of lines in the films, but he's more of a, a, a physical presence. Um, there have been, you know, some other, uh, interesting, uh, interpretations, uh, of the movie. Uh, there was the, um, the film that came out, uh, was done by Dan Curtis, uh, featured Jack Palance, who um, is not known for horror movies, uh, was known for playing villainous characters, very hard-edged characters. Uh, he actually, I think, did a very interesting and, and somewhat against-the-grain uh, interpretation of Dracula. And then if you look at Nosferatu, the movie that came out in 1979, the remake of the original Nosferatu, uh, that was a movie that starred uh, Klaus Kinski. And Nosferatu is basically Dracula. They changed the name because they didn't want to get in trouble in terms of copyright problems. Uh, Stoker's widow ended up suing, uh, tried for a while to get the film taken out of uh, circulation. Long term, though, those efforts uh, failed. But Klaus Kinski, as that Nosferatu Dracula character, is is absolutely wild. Of course, in real life, I mean, the man was a certified maniac and often treated uh, his co-stars, his directors, oh. abominably. I mean, he was he was just not a good guy in many ways. But he was uh, a, a tremendous actor, and he gives a, a very interesting interpretation of the character of Dracula or as we refer to it in that movie as Nosferatu. So those are a few of, of, of the Draculas that um, come to mind for me. Uh, so what we're going to have to do with you, Tracy, we're going to have to have you watch this new movie and, uh, and see what you think of this interpretation of Dracula, which seems a lot more monstrous, a lot less human. But I think it's going to be fun. I really do. I do too. And I really can't wait to see it. It's just that different kind of interpretation. And, you know, just the initial reaction for me to the trailer, it, it was, it was really kind of spooky. So I, I really can't wait to see it. Dracula continues to be an interesting part and a very engaging part of popular culture, particularly here in America. Uh, it's been all these years later uh, since the novel was written, since the early films, Nosferatu in the 1920s, Dracula in 1931. It's been many years since those movies came out. If anything, though, the character of Dracula, the story of Dracula is as popular now as it's ever been. And uh, I'm sure it'll continue to be a theme at least every once in a while on this show. Tracy, want to thank you for being with us uh, on this uh, edition, our milestone fifth episode of the Ghostly Gallery podcast. Uh, thanks for your thoughts and your contributions. Uh, we do appreciate it. 
Oh, thank you so much, Bruce. This has been an excellent conversation. My co-host and our producer, Tracy Asteria, has uh, been with us. Uh, looking ahead to some of our future shows, we're looking forward to speaking in the very near future with Mark Dewidziak. Mark is a wonderful writer and historian. Uh, he's perhaps best known for the work that he has done uh, chronicling Rod Serling's Twilight Zone. But he has a relatively new book out, came out in the spring of this year, and it's all about uh, the life and the very mysterious death of Edgar Allan Poe. I recently had a chance to read the book. Uh, Mark will be one of our future guests on the program. So we look forward to talking to Mark about Edgar Allan Poe, one of the great writers of the macabre, certainly one of the great horror authors of all time. Well, that'll put a wrap on this week's edition of the program. We thank you for being with us. And please, if you will, join us next time right here in the Ghostly Gallery.